The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. Come on back. Uh, As you come back, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. The page numbers uh, will be on the screen behind me. Otherwise, you can look in your bulletin. The page numbers are there. Romans chapter 8. As you turn there, just want to share this weekend. Our elders went on a retreat. Um, It was was awesome. Uh, It was was wonderful. Um, One thing we did was we listened to a sermon by Paul Tripp. And he made a comment about community that struck all of us very deeply. He said, your walk with God is a community project. Your walk with God is a community project. In other words, it's not something we're to do on our own, but in the midst of community. And so as we think about small groups, just want to encourage you again uh, to sign up, uh, to to try out a small group, uh, because your walk with God is a community project. He says that in community that we should all seek out intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. And that's what we hope our small groups are uh, for all of us here. And so encourage you again uh, to take a step of faith and sign up for a small group. Romans chapter 8, uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 27. Romans 8 verse 14, this is God's word. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows What is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, there is 
so much treasure in this passage. Uh, We could by no means plumb the depths of it, even if we had all day. And yet we pray that this morning and this time we have together to look deeper, that you would show us the glory of what is contained in these words. The glory of the truths that are our hope, our future, our present. That you would remind us of the glory of the good news of the gospel for people like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college in Columbia, Missouri, uh, there was a time where I was visiting different churches trying to find a home church. And so one Sunday, I went by myself to this church on the edge of town that I had seen several times. Um, And I showed up, and as we were in the midst of the worship service, something very odd happened. A person stood up and started just yelling in a foreign language. I was startled by the whole thing, but nobody else was. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to be still and see what happens. And then someone stood up and started yelling in English. Again, no one else was startled, but I was, and so I just continued to sit there. We went through the worship service, and it happened again. Someone got up, started yelling in a foreign language, and someone got up, started yelling in English. And so I turned to the lady next to me, and I said, "Um, ma'am, what What is that? And she's like, oh, honey, you know, they're speaking in tongues. You never heard of that? And I'm like, no. And she's like, yeah, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're speaking in tongues. And I'm like, okay. And so I left that service just very confused. Uh, I was confused because I was a born-again Christian just recently. God had been changing my heart and my life, but I didn't speak in tongues. And so I'm wondering, so am I not really all that filled with the Holy Spirit? And it began this very confusing journey of what it looks like to live in the Spirit of God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Throughout college, I was encouraged by friends to to fast and to pray and to spend long hours just kind of trying to be transcendent and waiting for the Holy Spirit to do magical and fantastic things through me. You see, the Holy Spirit is such a confusing subject in the modern American church, especially in the past 120 years, if you know the history of the church. I can give you many examples of this. Um, You know, there was, I think I shared this before, but a couple years ago, a woman came into church and she said, hey, are you a spirit-filled church with spirit-filled worship? And I go, man, I hope so. I think think we are. Um, But she left after three songs because evidently we didn't fit her definition of spirit-filled. Just this past year, there was a couple, uh, not a part of our church, that was going through really hard things in their marriage and um, their advisor or their friend said, don't go to the elders of Jacobswell Church to be counseled because they're not spirit-filled. Uh, even this past week, I asked someone if I could pray for them, and it got very awkward, and they turned to me and they said, well, um, do you do healings? Do you prophesy? And they were trying to measure how much I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of tangential conversations we could have with this that we could have at some other time, but, but I think what I started to see is that in modern Christianity, there's kind of this two-tier view of Christianity, that there's this one group of Christians who, 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 who kind of have the Holy Spirit, but then there are super-duper Christians. 
these, these really great and marvelous Christians that have the Holy Spirit in these, these extraordinary ways that the rest of us ordinary Christians don't have. Now, I struggle with that for a couple reasons. One, um, just as the Bible uh, is one reason, but the other, um, and we can talk about this. I mean, let's talk. If, but, but the other reason is, is because I'm not a super-duper Christian. Um, I was encouraged throughout college, try hard, be a super-duper Christian. It never happened. I never became a super-duper Christian. I still, I still doubt at times that, that God is my heavenly Father, that He cares for me and loves me. There are still times where I struggle to know how to pray to God. There are times in the midst of suffering that I'm led to despair, forgetting about the glory that is to come. Uh, friends, if, you are, if you're a member of Jakesville Church, your, your pastor is not a super-duper Christian by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he is, a, he is a weak Christian, or as the Bible would call it, a Christian, an ordinary Christian, who has common struggles. I love today's passage. I love today's passage. I am so excited to share it with you because what we learn is that the Holy Spirit is not for super-duper Christians. The Holy Spirit is for weak Christians, normal Christians. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, tells us that God had said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in, do you know the word? Weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, if you come today humbled by your finiteness, by your sinfulness, by your weakness, and you come to Christ there's such good news. The Holy Spirit has come to be your helper. Paul shows us in this passage that the Holy Spirit assures us of our adoption when we are doubting our adoption. That the Holy Spirit groans for our glory when we are in the pit of despair, in the midst of suffering. And that the Holy Spirit perfects our prayers when we are groaning in ways not able to communicate anything intelligible in our mind. And so let's look and see how the Holy Spirit comes along Christians, we Christians, to be their help. First, the Holy Spirit assures our adoption. Let's start by looking at verse 14 together. In verse 14, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now let's, let's kind of back up. What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? Well, as is usually the case, we can get the answer by looking at the context of the passage. So if we look at the verse right prior to verse 14, we read this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so what verse 13 tells us is that if that you are being filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're being led by the Holy Spirit, if you have yielded and surrendered to the Holy Spirit, what is going to happen is that you're going to start to put to death the deeds of the body, that you're going to start to put to death your sinful tendencies. In other words, you will repent. 
You will live a lifestyle of repentance, continually seeing more and more the sin in your life and giving it over to God and living more and more for Him. And so you will be changed and conformed into the image of Christ. You see, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of our sin, to show us our sin, to show us how self-destructive it is, to show us how it is offensive to God and abrasive to God, and to lead us into the path of repentance and returning to God, and applying the the good news of the gospel to all of our life. According to verse 13, you are a child of God if you are led by the Holy Spirit, and you know you are led by the Holy Spirit if you live a lifestyle of repentance, continually being conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, according to verse 14, if this is true of you, if you are led by the Spirit of God and this lifestyle of repentance, then we have this great assurance that we are sons of God, daughters of God, children of God, which leads us to verse 15, which says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, let's think about this. Why would it be that a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God would fall back into fear? into the slavery of fear. Well, let's think about this. We talked about one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is it reveals our sinfulness, okay? But it also reveals God's holiness, his glory, his awesomeness, his majesty. And so as we are growing in the awareness of our sinfulness and how destructive it is and how offensive it is to God, but also simultaneously growing in our awareness of the the greatness of God and and the, the majesty of God and the power of God, as we see our sinfulness more and see God's majesty more, then it would be natural to fall into fear, wouldn't it? To say, what would God want with me? Look at my life. It is so sinful. It is so destructive. Why would God want anything to do with me? Wouldn't he want to push me away? Wouldn't he want to reject me? Wouldn't he want to get rid of me? That would be the slavery of fear that Paul is talking about here. But in verse 15, he says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That is the fear of the condemnation of God, which Paul talks about in verse 1. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When you come today, I'm curious if any of you come overwhelmed by the depth of your sin, wondering if you have out-sinned God's mercy, out-sinned God's love, out-sinned God's grace. Maybe you thought, you know, everybody else in here, they're super-duper Christians, but then there's me. Verse 15 again, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into the fear of God's condemnation, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This past weekend, I went up to uh, Pine Mountain with my family to teach my kids how to ski and to teach my, uh, my sister from Texas came up with her kids, and it was like negative 20. It was awesome. Um, with the windshield. And so anyways, but we were up there teaching the kids how to ski. And as they grew in confidence, took them up to the top of the mountain. And I would let them ski in front of me and I'd be skiing about 10 yards behind. And they'd be skiing down the mountain and, you know, they'd start to wobble and then they'd go up like this. And then you knew what was coming, right? And they'd, they'd hit like a, like a little patch of, of rough snow and they would fall, right? And they'd, they'd, they'd collapse on the ground and I would 
ski up to them, and I'd look at them, and I'd say, what's wrong with you, kid? Come on. How can you be mine? I can't believe you did that. And I would ski off. Right? No. What would happen? Ski up to my kid. Sometimes there would be tears from them. Not from me. There is now, but... And I'd say, are you okay? How are you? Are you fine? I'd, I'd dust off the snow. I'd pick them up. I'd find their ski. I'd give them a hug. You okay? I'd put the ski back on them. I'd, I'd get them turned in the right direction. And then I would send them down the slope. Then they would go 100 yards. And you know what would happen? They'd wipe out. And I'd come alongside of them, and I'd say, are you okay? And I'd hug them, and I'd get their ski and send them in the right direction. Sorry. The reason why this makes me so emotional is because this is what God does with us. When you fail, when you sin, when you make a wreck of your life, your Heavenly Father does not come to you and say, what's wrong with you, kid? I can't believe you did that. I'm done with you. It's not what he does. He comes alongside of you. He says, are you okay? I love you. I care for you. He picks you up. He finds your skis for you. He puts them on. He sends you in the right direction. This is such good news, isn't it? You don't have to be a slave to fear when you sin because God is no longer judge. Your your verdict has already been accomplished at the cross. You are his child. And so as you wreck your life many ways with sin, remember this passage. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you can cry, Abba, Father. And that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit. He assures us that we are children of God. Friends, in the midst of your sin, you need not hide from God. Cry out to him. Cry out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, come, help me. Help me back on my feet. Care for me. Send me in the right direction. And we can be assured He will if you are His child. And so when we make a wreck of our life, the Holy Spirit assures us of God's unconditional of love. The Holy Spirit assures us of God's fatherly care. The Holy Spirit assures us of our full and irreversible, undeniable adoption as sons and daughters of God, no matter how bad we wreck our life. The second thing the Holy Spirit does for weak Christians like me is the Holy Spirit groans our glory. Verse 17, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. 
An heir is simply someone who receives an inheritance. They're benefactors when somebody else passes away. Now, God's inheritance has some unique differences from earthly inheritance. One thing is that an earthly inheritance is received when another person dies. But our inheritance is received when we die. Interesting, huh? An earthly inheritance is temporary. It, it runs out uh, either because you spend it all or because you die. But the heavenly inheritance is eternal. For it will never run out and you will never die. Now later in this passage, Paul is going to detail the substance of this inheritance, which we'll get to later. But Paul first shows us why this inheritance is something that we should long for, something that we do long for, even if we don't know it. Verse 17, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This verse flies in the face of the modern-day prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, which is preached at many churches that many love to hear, that if you are a super-duper Christian, if you have enough faith, if you have enough zeal for the Lord, that you will be rich, that you will be healthy, that you will always be happy based on your situation. But verse 17 says very clear that we must suffer with Christ. The sign of a true disciple of Jesus is not the sweetness of your ride, but the suffering for your Savior. Think of the 12 apostles. Subtract Judas, add Paul in there. All of them suffered tremendously for being Christ's followers. All of them were poor beyond anything you or I could imagine. All of them were tortured. All of them, except for John, were put to death for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And yet John maybe had it worse off. He was boiled alive, but survived to go to an island and write the book of Revelations. Friends, we should not be surprised that following Jesus is costly. That following Jesus causes us suffering. It costs us money as we give to, to church and to missions. It costs us comfort as we engage in spiritual conversations and send our friends away to go plant another church. It costs us time and energy as we sacrificially give of our talent to others. It may even cost you your job as you stand for Christ and the principles of Christ. It can cost you your reputation as people discredit your intelligence because you believe that there is a God. And it can even cost your safety and your life if God calls you to go and minister in certain areas of the world where they are determined to extinguish the light of the gospel. Now you may hear this and wonder, why in the world would I follow Jesus if it brings suffering? There are many reasons. Let me just give you four quick ones. The first is very easy because Jesus is worthy. You know, we can understand why a soldier would go off to war because they would fight for their country because their country is worthy. If that is true, how much more true is it that our Savior, our Redeemer, and our God is worthy of our suffering? The second is that suffering is the way of the gospel. It is not through riches or through political power that Christ brings forth his kingdom, but it was through his humiliation, through going to the cross and taking on our sin. It was through weakness and suffering that we were saved. 
Thirdly, we would suffer because while faithfully following Christ may include great sacrifice and does not always bring comfort or ease or riches, it always brings joy because we were created to follow Christ even in the midst of suffering. And the fourth reason which Paul talks about here, why we would suffer for Christ, is because suffering directs us to the ultimate and everlasting glory to come. Verse 17, he says it this way. Again, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul goes on here and he personifies creation, which means he gives human characteristics to it to show that, that this longing for glory, this longing for the world that is to come isn't just for humans, but it's for all of creation. It's holistic. Verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And we know that the sons of God are the children of God, the people of God, according to verse 14. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. How is it that creation is subjected to futility? Well, you can just ask animals that are extinct, right? <laughs> You can think of pollution or oil spills or global warming. Don't shoot me, all right? You can think of, of vegetation that's being torn down, animals that are dying because there's no place to live. All of creation is subject to the futility of the fall. Why? Verse 20 ends with this. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is longing for the world to be made right again. All of creation longs for a world that is free of corruption and decay. All of the world longs for the completion of God's kingdom. Verse 23, Paul continues, and he says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Let me explain that a little bit. The first fruits was the first harvest of the season. And what it's telling us here is that on this side of heaven, we have the first fruits, the initial harvest of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But the full gift of the Holy Spirit, the full harvest is yet to come when we enter into glory. Verse 23, he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits of adoption, the first fruits of the Spirit, and it is good. It is so good. But as we live in the midst of a broken world, it makes us long for that day when we will receive the Spirit a full, when we will receive our adoption a full. Think of first fruits, and full adoption in this way. I've heard it said that if you are going to adopt a child from another country or maybe even another state, uh, that you don't just go and pick them up and drive back home, typically. A lot of times you have to go and you have to stay in the country for weeks or, or months or something like that. And you are in that adoption process. You are adopting this child, but they have not yet received the full benefits of that adoption 
because you haven't brought them home yet, right? So they're yours uh, at some point in that process, and yet they still have not received the full benefits of that adoption because you have not brought them home, okay? Do you see where I'm going with this? And so we are here on earth. We are citizens of heaven. We are in a foreign land. We have been adopted by God, but we have not received the full adoption until God brings us to his home, until God brings us into glory, in which we will then experience the full pleasure, the full benefits of adoptions as sons and daughters of God. Paul continues, verse 24, he says, For in or into this hope we were saved. Now hope what is, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When the scriptures speak of hope, it's not speaking of an uncertain hope, like I hope I get a raise next year. The hope of heaven is a confident hope, a hope that we stake our life for, on, the hope that we groan for, that we long for, that we look to in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of a broken world. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now, before I move on to the next point, I want to talk about the substance of our inheritance. What are we heirs of? What is to come and the glory that is to come? Well, if you look at Ephesians 1, it tells us first and foremost that our inheritance is God. Their inheritance is to be in the glory of God. But that's not what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 8. He talks about that plenty of places. But here in Romans chapter 8, he tells us something very interesting. He points to a very interesting aspect of our inheritance. I want to see if you can detect it. Let me read a couple of these verses to you. Verse verse 17. He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that who? we may also be glorified with him. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and, and to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of who? The children of God. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly and we, uh, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of what? Our bodies. Friends, we, when we think of heaven, we think of the glory of God, and that is extremely appropriate and right and true. But here in Romans 8, Paul tells us that in the midst of a suffering world, in the midst of decay, that we not only look forward to the glory of God to be revealed, but we look to the, forward to the glory to be revealed within each and every one of us. It almost sounds heretical to say it. That's why I wanted to read the verses, to make sure you know I wasn't making this up. But God is saying through Paul, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the decay, in the midst of your body wearing out, it's okay to look forward to the glory, not only of God, but the glory that is to come inside of you. I mean, imagine it. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. No more icy hot. No more walkers. No more aspirin. No more wheelchairs. No more doctors. How glorious is it going to be? The glory of our bodies, a renewed body, a refreshed body. No more broken bones. No more casts. No more crutches. God will reveal his glory in heaven, but he will also give us his glory. He will restore to us 
the way it's supposed to be. And that's why Paul says in verse 18, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he gives this illustration in verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't find childbirth all that painful. Um, men, do we agree? My wife would disagree with that. It wasn't that painful for me, but it was extraordinarily painful for her. And I know what got her through the pain. She told me this. What got her through the pain was the hope of seeing that child. It was the hope of seeing the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the child that God had created in her womb. Friends, if you are suffering through chronic pain because you are following Jesus, we are told that this is just the pains of childbirth and the glory is yet to come. The glory of God and the glory of God's redemption of your body and soul. And so what is the role of the Holy Spirit and we Christians? The Holy Spirit assures us of our adoption when we are doubting God's fatherly love and care. The Holy Spirit makes our spirit groan for the glory that is to come in the midst of our suffering. But finally, the Holy Spirit perfects our prayer. It's verse 26. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice Paul doesn't say the Spirit helps you in your weakness. He says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If there was ever a super-duper Christian, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet the Apostle Paul says, our weakness. I am weak. And what's so interesting is Paul doesn't say that the Holy Spirit removes our weakness. It's not what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now that weakness plays out in many ways, but here Paul emphasizes our prayer life. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. One of our weaknesses is that we don't know what to pray or how to pray. This might be for many reasons. Maybe we don't know what to pray because we're distracted by our own agenda. Maybe we don't know what to pray because we're confused about what the right thing is to pray. Maybe we don't know what to pray because we're finite creatures before an infinite God. But sometimes we don't know what to pray because we are hurting so bad that words cannot articulate our pain. And what we are promised here is that in our weakness, when we not know, know not what to pray or how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. When words fail to carry the necessary communication of our prayers, the Spirit groans within us in a language that God completely understands. You know, I'm so amazed when a mother hears a child cry and knows exactly what that child wants. It's like, wah, oh, that child is hungry. Wah, oh, they're cold, right? Wah, oh, they want to be held. Wah, oh, they want a cafe, mocha, cappuccino, right? Like, moms know. It's 
They can translate for us dads. Friends, if you're here today and you are hurting so deeply or you are so confused about life that all you can do is groan, praise God. Because you know what? The Spirit's going to translate it for you. The Spirit is going to take your imperfect prayer and perfect it and give it to the Heavenly Father who will hear and know and understand your prayer better than you will. Verse 27, Paul continues, he says, And he who searches heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God the Father knows the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows the mind of the Father. And so when we offer prayers and, our, and the Holy Spirit translates it for us to God, what it is doing is perfecting our prayers. And so God's answer to our prayer may be yes, it may be no, it may be later. But when the Holy Spirit translates our prayer to the Heavenly Father, the answer to the Spirit is always yes. Because it always perfects our prayers. You know, there are so many times where I need people to intercede for me because I don't quite know how to communicate something. For example, I have a financial planner, and we call into uh, Raymond James or some, I don't even know what it's called. That's how ignorant I am. So we'll call there. He'll be on the phone. I'll be on the phone. We'll call. They'll say, hey, is this Dan Jackson? Yes. Give me your social security number. Do that. All right. I give my financial planner complete right to talk on my behalf and to make all these decisions. So they'll have this conversation. They'll use some of the words I know, like the and uh and you know, but most of them, I have no idea what they mean, right? They're talking about paperwork and lines and things like that. I have no idea what's going on. But then we get to the end, they're like, all right, you're all set to go. Yay, right? I just turned over my house. No. Um, but it translates, this person translates for me to communicate so that I can come to the end and say, all right, we're ready to move forward. In the same way, the Holy Spirit translates our prayers, intercedes for us, and it perfects our prayers. And so how does this apply to our prayer life? Pray bold prayers. Pray weak prayers. Pray short prayers. Pray long prayers. Pray crystal clear prayers. Pray confused prayers. Just pray with confidence that the Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf. Let me end with this. Before um, I would send my kids down the hill to ski and be behind them, I would first have to assist them a lot more. And so we would get off the ski lift, and I would come up behind them, and I'd put my skis just outside their skis, and I would wrap my arms under their arms, and I would go down the hill with them. I would be slowing us down. I would be turning us to the right and to the left. I'd be speeding us up at times, and we would get down to the bottom of a hill, and we'd say, yay, we made it, we made it. See, the good news here is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just surround the Christian. The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian to guide us, to slow us, to speed us up, to direct us, to empower us. In Jesus' farewell discourse, he comes to the disciples before his death and resurrection, and he gathers around them and gives them this earth-shattering news. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, that is the Father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why does Jesus call 
the Holy Spirit the helper? Because the Holy Spirit is not for super-duper strong, perfect Christians, but for weak Christians that need the help of God in their life. For weak Christians like us who doubt our Heavenly Father's love, the Holy Spirit assures us of our adoption. For weak Christians, Christians like us who despair over suffering of this world, forgetting heaven to come, the Holy Spirit groans for our glory. And for weak Christians like us who know not what to pray or how to pray, the Holy Spirit perfects our prayers. In 2 Corinthians 12, God says to Paul, but also to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Christian, let us boast all the more gladly of our weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. For the sake of Christ, then let us be content with our weakness. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that I don't have to be a super-duper Christian for you to work in my life. Thank you that I don't have to pursue this certain level of maturity, although you certainly mature us, but the certain level of maturity for the Holy Spirit to be active and at work in my life. Thank you that you remind me and assure me that you are my daddy, that you are my Abba Father, that when I make a wreck of my life, I need not fear you, I need not run from you, but I can run to you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today, Lord, who is running from you because they fear you as judge, that they would turn and run to you as their heavenly Father through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. As we gather around the Lord's table, this is a table, again, not for perfect Christians. As a matter of fact, if you are a perfect Christian, you are not allowed to come to this table. This is a table only for weak Christians, Christians that need to be strengthened. As we take this, this food, this literal food, this literal bread, this literal juice, as we take it, it nourishes our body. It gives us strength to go, not much, but a little bit, to shovel the driveway or whatever it might be, right? That is to be a reminder to us of how through this, as we take this in faith, God nourishes us spiritually to be reminded that he is our father who loves us and cares for us, that he is our strength and weakness, and that he is our ever-present help. If you are here today and you are a Christian, you trust in Christ for your salvation, it matters not how weak you are, but if you come repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ, this is for you to nourish you, to point you to Jesus to remind you of both the author, but also the perfecter of your faith. If you don't trust in Christ for your salvation, we're so glad you're here. We want you to operate authentically to God, authentically to your own conscience. Please do not come and take these elements. But for the rest, please come and take them as you're ready. Bring it back to your seat. And we'll partake together as one body, the body of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to him and said, drink of this, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If I could have the ushers come forward.